Before we get into our text this morning, uh, guys, this is for you. Starting on Wednesday, um, I'm going to begin teaching this class. Wednesday morning at 6.30 or Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. So if you're a slacker and you can't get up at 6.30, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you can come to 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock at night. There'll be these, these man-sized muffins, none of those little girly muffins, okay. And, and then there, there will be... Uh, you know, beverages to drink, coffee, things like that to help wake you up, caffeinated stuff. So either 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock at night, either one. Uh, the study is called Follow Me. It's a six-week study. Dr. David Platt authored this, and we'll be doing a video-based teaching, and I'll be leading it. And then uh, after six weeks, we'll be jumping into a new study. So if you want to try it out, try out the men's study, either one of those, 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night. You can read more about it in those Life Group brochures that are in your bulletin this morning. Well, how about if we take a minute before we step into the text and come before the Father and ask Him to lead us? Would you do that with me? Father, we begin by declaring Your holiness and Your righteousness and that Your throne, which knows no end and rules over earth and heaven, is righteous and true. There's only justice found in you. So we come before you knowing that you want only the best for us. And we're asking as a result of our time that we've taken to be here, time that you've given us, that we're giving back, we're asking God that we could trade that for a better understanding of you. We come before you desiring to know more about your nature and your character. And that can't happen without your Holy Spirit being our teacher. As much as I might try as a human, I will fall short if your Holy Spirit does not cover this place, Father. So God, we we ask that you would rain down upon us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Cause your word that you say is alive and active to be alive and active in our life. And I believe, Father, I believe you want to speak to every single individual in this auditorium. Give us understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I personally have been really enjoying greatly this study that we've been in, the First Step series. and This is week number six, if you've been keeping track. If you've missed any of them, you can catch them on iTunes or catch them on our website so you can get caught up. But it's just been fantastic seeing how God is intervening in the lives of these individuals. What we might call life-altering moments. Let's think of Cornelius last week. Roman centurion, he thinks he knows God, doesn't really know God, And God causes Peter to come to Cornelius and explain how he can really know God through through Jesus. Step back with me a week before that, Abram. Abram's doing what he thinks he knows he's supposed to do through rituals. He doesn't really know God until God reveals himself. Another life-altering moment. Go back before that, Bartimaeus, the blind guy on the side of the street. Or what about the demon-possessed boy? Jesus intervened in his life. Or, Or Joshua standing on the bank of the Jordan River. Every single one of those individuals had a life-altering moment because they discovered the God of wonders really wants to involve himself in their life. Now, as fascinating as it is to learn about those individuals, if we're really honest with ourselves when we read those stories, we'd say, you know, 
It's great to know more about God's nature and his character. But I'm thinking that's kind of like for a special group of Christians. Can you identify with that? Many people look at the individuals in the Bible and say, there must have been something unique about them because I've never seen God involve himself in my life in that way, even though they really want a life-altering moment like that. Let me invite you this morning to turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's in the New Testament and it's way to the end, but it'll also be up on the screen as well so you can follow along. But while you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, I want to take you back to where we left off last week just by putting a verse up on the screen. This is, this is a Peter speaking. It's from Acts chapter 10. And Peter, remember, was invited to Cornelius' house, a Roman centurion. And this is where we left off last week with Peter making this declaration. Verse 42, This is the one, speaking of Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Uh, Every one of us knows that we're going to stand before God one day. Every single person understands they will give an accounting for their life. We will stand before Him in some fashion. And many people hope that they have enough religious credits in the positive column to get them in. That's where most people come from. That's the basis of their thinking. If I'm good enough and I do enough of the right things and I get enough religious credits, maybe maybe I'll impress God enough that He'll let me in. I had a conversation with a lady a couple months ago who was um, in her 70s and uh, declining in her health And she said to me, well, I've been a good girl all my life. God will probably wink at me and just let me in. It's a framework of thinking. Now, if we were honest, we would say we know many people who believe that way. Both Christians and non-Christians think that if they impress God, maybe they'll get in. Here's what I'm convinced of. Most people forget who are believers in Jesus Christ or they don't know and they never learned in the first place that if you're a believer in Jesus, you stand faultless before the throne already. You're already redeemed. You're already seen as righteous and holy. I'm convinced to be effective in your walk with God, it requires something of you. It requires that you have this knowledge of the nature and the character of God toward you. What does God think of you? How does God see you? In order to be effective in your walk, in order to have these life-altering moments like these individuals did, you've got to understand how God sees you. His view of you is absolutely crucial. So this morning might be your life-altering moment because you're about to get a new view of how God sees you. And if you get nothing else this morning, if you leave with no other thought when you go out the door, take this thought with you. You stand faultless before the throne of God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Absent of that knowledge, you have no grasp of the power in your relationship with your Father. And that means in your prayer walk, and in your daily walk and how you carry out your life. Let me flesh it out for you this way. I'll give you an example. Now, Lori and I had a chance to go to South Carolina earlier this week to see our son Adam and, and his wife Allison. And uh, we had road time because we drove. So, you know, our, our wives like to talk, guys, right? You know, they have lots of words to get out. 
And um, fortunately for me, Lori was driving so I could study. So I had my laptop open and I'm typing away. And she just couldn't stand the silence any longer. So um, she said, what you thinking about? And I said, oh, you don't want to know. I keep typing. No, I really do want to know. And I said, no, you really don't. And she said, yeah, come on. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's so quiet in here. I said, okay, you asked for it. Um, I said, when, when you believe or when you think of people praying and going before God, you think most people expect that God's going to answer their prayers? I'll tell you what she said in a minute. Where do, where do you stand on that issue? When you come before God, do you think that God's going to answer your prayers? Uh, I, I took it one step further with her. I said this. Um, do most people believe that God is incapable of answering their prayers? Or do they feel that they're not worthy and therefore, why should they bother? Because their life is a mess and God's not going to listen to me anyways. One or two. Two. Yeah, that's the same place Lori landed. But we went on to further theological conversation, which she greatly enjoyed. So, uh, <laughs> hey, she asked. So, so um, I would agree with you. Most people would land on number two saying, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm in with God. I'm a believer. I'm good with him. But, I've screwed up so many times. Why should he bother listening to me? I'm just, why bother? Really, really most people vastly misunderstand not only the power in prayer and coming before the Father, but they vastly misunderstand their standing before God and how he sees us. So, with Philippians chapter 3 opened, hopefully you're there by now, you're going to follow along on the screen. We're going to use Paul as an example this morning because Paul kind of puts himself out there. Now, we would say this guy seems like he had all the religious credits in the right column. Everything that you could do as a plus, he's got a plus. He's undergone all the proper rituals. He's a member of God's chosen people. He's from the favored tribe in Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's meticulously maintained all of the Orthodox heritage, everything that he's required to do. He's one of the most devout Jews living at this period of time. And he is zealous with a capital Z. If you look up zealous in the dictionary, Paul's picture is right next to it. That's just who he is. Look with me on the screen at Philippians 3.4. Verse 4 says this, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Who could say that about themselves? This guy's the bright, shining star on Judaism's horizon. And from what I've read, He's the most promising young Jewish leader of his time, destined to become a leader in Israel. Now, Paul's confidence has always been in his capacity, and everything came to a crashing stop when he met Jesus because he realized in that moment, despite all of his accomplishments, despite everything that he's achieved, he's still fallen, fallen far short of what God requires. He didn't come to believe that the things that he had accomplished were good and that Jesus was better. No, rather, he viewed the things that he accomplished as bad because those things had deceived him into thinking he's got religious credits in the right column and he's earning something before God. Paul came to understand that God demands one thing of every single person. 
He demands righteousness. God is righteous and holy. Heaven is righteous and holy. The angels who populate heaven are righteous and holy. And nothing unholy will ever enter there. Nothing unrighteous belongs in heaven. Let me remind you what Scripture says. Revelation 21, 27. You'll see this on the screen. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, speaking of heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, you and I stand acceptable before God only by one thing. If we are clothed in righteousness. Now, Paul had a righteousness that came from the law. The law that God had given to Israel. Through Moses, Paul had a righteousness. People watching Paul and watching the Pharisees would agree. They kept the law. They're really good. They're meticulous. But the righteousness that they had was not the kind that God requires. And this truth hit Paul with devastating force. It absolutely blew him off his feet. He just couldn't comprehend it. Life before was all about rules and systems and works. Life with Jesus is all about grace. Now, Philippians 3, 7, the verse that you're about to look at, I'd like to call a smartphone passage, and I'll tell you why. You know what a smartphone looks like? It's so, so sleek. It's beautiful. It's got one button. When the iPhone developers and Steve Jobs' team came out with the iPhone, he said, I want it extremely clean, and I want one button to operate the phone. That's the iPhone verse you're about to look at in Philippians 3.7 because it's brilliant, it's clean, it's sleek on the outside, but what's going on inside boggles the mind. That's absolutely phenomenal what Paul is writing here. Go with me to verse 7 in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So let's talk about what his gain was. What were the things that he put in his gain column? Well, he's highly dignified in his birth. Hebrew of Hebrews, he tells us. And he's distinguished in his education. Do you know that Paul went to the Yale or the Harvard of his day? He trained under Gamaliel. Look with me up on the screen so you see this. This is him speaking of himself. Acts 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, educated under Gamaliel. Not just anybody got in there. To study under Gamaliel, the highest professor in the land, you had to be somebody special. Now, he's very strict in his principles. He joined himself with the Pharisees. That was a club you can join, a group of individuals who kept the law meticulously. They were the most rigid sect of the Jews. And his conduct was irreproachable. Great conscience before God, even from his youth, he tells us. And his zeal unmatched among his peers. As a matter of fact, when you read about his zeal as a Christian once he met Jesus, you want to say, Paul, take a chill pill. Man, you are like on caffeine all hyped up. He's just super energetic about the things that he took on for the sake of the kingdom. So if any man ever had religious credits in the right column, it's Paul. He's got a righteousness of his own. But he says, all those things I had gain of, I count as loss. He actually had experienced loss, lots of it, things that he surrendered. And he's not saying, I'd trade it. No, he's saying there's no doubts, there's no regrets whatsoever. Do you see in verse 7 the intense change when someone becomes a believer in Jesus? Look at it, it's very subtle. Those things I have counted as loss. There's a guy who's on the fast track to the leader of Israel. 
the cream of the crop. He's saying, I set all those things aside and I count them as loss. There's life change. Now, some of you really, really love theology, and so I'm just going to give you something that's very subtle that we see in verse 7 and verse 8. He says in verse 7, in the, in the perfect tense, a verb, I have counted, which means those things that he accomplished in the past. And then he says in verse 8, I count, which means in the present tense. Here's what it indicates for all of us. All the accomplishments, all the works, everything that Paul had counted on, past, present, and future, every one of those things to earn God's favor so that God would wink and say, well, Paul, you're a pretty good guy, I'll let you in. All those things, he's saying, they're loss. Go with me to verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you notice he doesn't say our Lord? It is personal for him. My Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. I count all things as loss. Have you suffered loss for the sake of the kingdom? Have you personally suffered some degree of loss? Students in school, if you're naming the name of Christ, you know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, you're not part of the in crowd. You're not invited to parties. People label you. What about in your social settings? What about in your professional settings at work? Have you named the name of Christ? Do you know what it is to be mocked in the workplace? See, Paul used to hang out with the in crowd He could go to the synagogues and he could talk theology and he could talk about God with the best of them. But now that he names the name of Jesus, when he goes to the synagogues, they beat him. They get the whips out. They want to stone him. They want to kill him. That's why he's saying, I've suffered loss. My experience is people don't know what to do with you when you name the name of Christ. It's like setting off the hand grenade in the room. Jesus. And they all want to back away. Because if you used to party with them and get wasted with them, And all of a sudden you don't? You're like the awkward guy on the other side of the room and they don't know what to do with you. So they stop inviting you and they start talking about you. You can suffer loss. See, in order to take the steps that lead to a much more mature walk with Christ, some things have to be left behind. That's what Paul is talking about here. So you risk ridicule. Now let's just think about Cornelius from last week. Roman centurion, I told you he's special forces. He's the commander of Rome. And he's invited all of his military buddies over to his house to hear Peter talk about Jesus. Is there some risk there? Yeah. Is is there some risk when Cornelius got on his knees and confessed Jesus as Lord in front of all of his peers? There's some risk. So we know what it is when we count things as loss. What might you include in the loss column? Finances, luxury, wealth, Health, safety, what about prestige? See, it's not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but Paul's saying pursuing them as the greater good to the degree that they replace God, to the point where you use them to try and impress God about who you are, that's when you need self-analysis to say, who am I really in the eyes of Jesus? So in verse nine or verse eight, he talks about this surpassing value of knowing Christ. Surpassing is a, a word that's in your notes this morning. You won't see it on the screen, but it's something that you can't even measure. 
It, Hoopercon. It, it goes beyond value. But here's a word I want to focus on. You won't see it on the screen, but it is in your notes. It's the word knowing. When he says, I want to know Christ Jesus, he's talking about experientially knowing as in the way of a personal relationship. Not just knowing facts, not just knowing information. This surpassing knowledge that Paul's talking about is far more than just intellectual. I'll, I'll, I'll flesh it out for you this way. It always amazes me at Christmas time and at Easter time when the church swells in attendance, okay? So we're a church of about 500 people on a typical weekend, but during Christmas, this last Christmas, we saw 800 people, okay? Where do the extra 300 people come from? Well, you, you got what some people might call creasters, all right? You familiar with that term, Christmas and Easter? Creasters, put the two words together. Okay, see, you don't see the creasters the rest of the year. You see them on Christmas and you see them at Easter, but they're good with everything else in between because really what people are doing who are creasters are coming just to get some facts, get some feel good. They're the spectators, they're the individuals who are just kind of watching from a distance. They're really not looking to know Jesus the way that he's talking about knowing him. This is what Jesus said about himself, John 10, 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. See, salvation is really personal. It, it requires this relational knowledge of Jesus. I read two weeks ago about a man in uh, Vietnam who was just discovered two months ago. He's been in the jungle for 40 years. Can you imagine? 40 years ago, when the Viet Cong were attacking his village and his wife was killed, he took his young son and ran into the jungles, into the deepest, darkest part where no one would ever find him, and no one found him for 40 years. And when they discovered him, it was a group of people who were out on a hike Somebody handed him a smartphone. <laughs> Can you imagine turning that baby on and say, here, do you have anybody you want to call? Can you imagine somebody thinking in 40-year-ago technology being told that they can call their family from this? Now, they tried to describe a smartphone to him, a cell phone. He couldn't grasp it until somebody dialed up a number for him. And then he knew what they were talking about. See, this knowing that Paul is talking about here is relational, something that you've personally experienced, something that you've engaged with. So that's why Jesus said, I know my sheep and they know me because it's relational. They've engaged with me. But Paul goes one step further. He says, those things that I gained, and I, I do want you to see this word on the screen because it's really powerful, I count them as rubbish. That's the very, very strong word in the Greek language, skubalon. And it literally is talking about human waste, dung, trash. He went so far as to consider those things that he gained as landfill material. So the Granger container backs up to him and he throws into it his diplomas. Everything that he's achieved, all his relationships, he says, I'll surrender them all for the sake of knowing Christ so that I can understand him better. So he says that I may gain Christ. What did he gain when he gained Jesus? I heard somebody say it, righteousness, sinlessness, the view of God standing before the throne. What did he gain when he gained Jesus? He gained righteousness. The, the righteousness literally means he was imputed 
to him, to his account. All the religious credits went away and they went into the dumpster. And in place was Jesus. Because Paul literally looked at his own account and said, I'm bankrupt. I got nothing. But Jesus is perfect. And he's got everything. That's why he goes on in the rest of verse 9 to say, I got a righteousness. But look where he's saying it now. Verse 9b, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. You talk about an about face. There's someone who's totally changed his perspective. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, when he says not a righteousness of my own, he's echoing what the Old Testament saints said. Let me show you what Isaiah said because it's not original to Paul. Here comes Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. Even the Old Testament guys knew that. We, we stand before God with no ability on our own, with no capacity. How do we get it? He says through faith in Christ. Now this is a guy who spent his entire adult life trying to get the religious credits in the proper column. And he's, he's trying really, really hard, his very best, and he fell far short. Can you imagine how crushing and how unbearable it would be to live under the law? Now, given a choice, any of you here, would you say you'd rather live under grace or under the law? Yeah, I've never heard anybody say they want to live under the law. Paul was glad to surrender that. He tried. But he understood now, Jesus alone provides the righteousness that we need. And absolutely nothing we can do will add to it. It's like trying to light a match to make the sun brighter. Just can't do it. It's so magnificent. All we can do is just receive the righteousness that he's provided to us. So he says, that righteousness that I have now, it comes from God on the basis of faith. What is righteousness? It's right standing before God. That's what righteousness is. I stand rightly before God. So we have our sin charged to Christ and His righteousness is transferred to us. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what your friends need to know. Those who have cost you social relationships, those who might mock you, they need Jesus. They need to understand this. They need to understand that his righteousness can be transferred to them and that their sins can be forgiven. And Jesus said, not just forgiven, but I'll separate your sins as far as the east is from the west and I'll remember them no more. Why? Because of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why, church? Let's say it together. So that we might become the righteousness of of God in Him. I don't know if you've ever looked at that verse that way before. The whole reason that Jesus was put on the cross was so that you would be made righteous before God. And on the cross, God judged Jesus as if He had personally committed every sin ever committed by every believer who's really a believer. That's what happened on the cross. So Paul, in his case, when he trusted Jesus, he saw that God put Christ's righteousness right on his own account. Paul's no longer bankrupt. He stands before God righteous. 
And when you, as a person who was a sinner at one time in the eyes of God, when you embrace Jesus as Lord, God treats you as though you lived Jesus' sinless life. That's how God views you. So that's why Paul ends with this cry of his heart from verse 10. Look at, look at how my, his heart's just bleeding here. Verse 10 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that I may know. He keeps coming back to that because he wants to go deeper. Because salvation is knowing him in a really personal way, this relationship. Specifically, he wants to know something. Do you notice the something? Not just that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection. See, I'm convinced, as I read this and really study it, I believe that Paul is talking about daily resurrection power. That ability that God has to intervene in your life to overcome sin, to overcome temptation, the dunamis power. The word that he actually uses here is dunamis, which may be familiar to you from the word dynamite. It means explosive power. As a matter of fact, the actual definition is an ability to overcome resistance. Romans 1.16 uses it this way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, the ability to overcome resistance. That's what Paul's looking for here, the power of his resurrection in his life. Why? Because he knows there's no power in the law. There's no power in self-righteousness. There's no power in works. We don't even have power over death. You heard Michael talk about it last week sitting at the piano saying, you ever go to the graveside and you see a dead body and you recognize, I've got no ability to overcome that. I can't even defeat that in the flesh. But through Jesus, you can. And only through Jesus. See, there's no power in the law. There's no power in the works. There's no power in self-righteousness. It's only in Jesus. And it's because we know Jesus, we have the spiritual power that God used to raise him. That's what's real in our life. So he ends with verse 11. He says this, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's our hope, church. That's our promise. And it's not like, I hope I get a BB gun for Christmas kind of hope. Because that's like hoping in hope, right? You, you can't influence that necessarily unless you beg really hard. But this kind of hope that we're talking about here is a sure and certain hope. Every time the word hope is used in the New Testament, it's talking about something that's promised from God but has not yet unfolded. That's the kind of hope we're talking about. Now, in Paul's case, he uses a very specific word here when he talks about the resurrection from the dead. It's used no place else in the Bible. This is the only time you'll ever see it occur. And I'm not even going to put the word on the screen. It's just a huge, long $10 word. But I want you to see the way it's interpreted. So you can see on the screen this phrase, the out-resurrection from among the corpses. That's the literal Greek interpretation for the resurrection from the dead. Now here's why that's significant. Because if you can wrap your mind around 1 Corinthians 15, and the promise that awaits you as believers, when we're told this, look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians 15, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. The out-resurrection from among the corpses. That's that imagery. 
That's why Paul would say, that's what I gain. That's the righteousness. If I could but attain unto that, not as though he could earn it. So we will be taken out from among the dead and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Who can think of the God of the universe hanging on a cross for his defiant, rebellious creatures and not stand amazed? Who can think of him doing that for us and not just be awestruck? I came across a quote I want to close with. I've told you before, I like reading Charles Simeon. He lived in the early 1800s. And he struggled with this very issue of the worthiness that he had before God. World-renowned theologian. Everybody reads his writings. And yet privately, he struggled with his own view of how God looks at him because it's common to man. Let me show you his quote on the screen. Can I doubt his love, his power, his grace, his truth and faithfulness? Has he done so much for me in order to forsake me at last and to abandon me to deeper ruin? Has he done so much for me when I was living in direct hostility to him? And will he leave me now that I seek his face and desire to glorify his name? No, I can trust him, and I will. Well do I know my own sinfulness, but I know also the virtue of his blood. I know my weakness also, but I know also the sufficiency of his grace to save me even to the uttermost. See, that's the basis by which Paul was crying out, your eye has not seen Your ear has not heard, nor has your heart even begun to understand the things that the Lord your God has in store for you, for those who love Him. See, we don't have a proper view of how God views us because most forget or don't know. We stand faultless before the throne. How do I know that? Look at this last verse, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's you. That's the promise of God. So when you come before Him, church, when you pray, when you talk to your Father, understand that He sees you righteous and pure and holy even when you don't think that way about yourself because God promised it. There is now no condemnation. What a great reminder for me to pray for you about right at this moment, that you would remember that. Let's pray together. Father, I I am placed here among many believers, those who absolutely own the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet some would still say they struggle with how you view them. Even somebody like Charles Simeon struggled with it, Father. Father, God, I ask that you would just pound it into us, remind us that you didn't send Jesus for us to be defeated, but you sent Jesus for us to be the overcomers, to know what victory is, that we're the redeemed. So Father, we can praise you fully. We praise you with hearts full of joy because we know what it is to be bought with the blood of the Lamb. But I'm also, Father, aware that there are some here today who have never entered into a relationship with you. And this is mystery to them. But right now, perhaps you're tugging on their heart in a way that no one else can. I can't do it. 
But God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might be tugging on someone's heart right now. And I ask that you would cause them in this moment to confess Jesus as their Lord. That they would deal with this issue. That they would allow you to forgive them of their sins. Father, you would move in that way. Bring conviction where conviction is necessary, but bring comfort, Father. Bring your love. Surround us all with the knowledge that there is no redemption in any other name under heaven other than in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we come before you. Amen.